0: If you have a long-duration pool of capital, just buy core infrastructure assets with stable, predictable cash flows and earn the yield. My guest on today's show does just that. Ross Israel is the head of Global Infrastructure Investments for QIC, Queensland, Australia's 82 billion Aussie dollar, that's 62 billion US dollar investment fund. The Queensland government formed QIC in 1991 To oversee its superannuation fund, and the business has since evolved into a global diversified alternative asset manager. Ross joined QIC in 2006 to create the global infrastructure effort and also serves as a member of QIC's investment committee. He has a quarter century's worth of experience in corporate finance and infrastructure funds management. Our conversation covers QIC's structure. Examples of long-duration assets in ports and waterways, crossing knowledge between private and public markets, managing external assets alongside a substantial internal pool, governance structure, compensation and incentives, navigating stakeholders, and opportunities and risks in the space. The subtle differences in constituents and objectives of sovereign wealth funds from other institutional pools come out in the implementation of QIC's investing, it's a topic we'll continue to explore on future shows. Please enjoy my conversation with Ross Israel. Ross, thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation. There's a lot of great stuff to talk about. Why don't we start with your background?
1: Sure. So I did commerce law at university. I left and went into tax, and I realized pretty early on that was not going to be the direction for me.
0: What was it about?
1: it? At- Just the grind and the hourly meter, I think, or six-minute meter, as they call it as well. So look, it was it was fun. It sort of began things. And then I moved into banking, investment banking. was based in Sydney. So I went to school in Brisbane and left to, as many people in Australia do, they sort of move out of the smaller cities into Sydney and Melbourne. And in investment banking, sort of fell into doing a lot of infrastructure sort of advisory really and was sort of lucky, I suppose, there was a sort of wave of privatisation that occurred particularly in Victoria in electricity. When was that? In the 90s and that was the beginning of quite a few waves that came through over, over the period from then to now and from there sort of had a sojourn for a couple of years in London with Barclay's BZW W as it was then and then came back and realized it was sort of like good to do the transaction but not necessarily to understand how the companies were being managed after the deal and so that was really the catalyst to get into sort of asset management and I'd just done a lot of stuff in infrastructure and I looked back and I probably had a desire to do private equity but the brief and advisory was just all infrastructure so I ended up moving across to an established portfolio at AMP Capital at the time and there was a whole lot of energy assets there which needed to be restructured so we did that and then we formed a sort of utility fund and then we did a joint venture with Macquarie Bank and then I went into the joint venture we listed on the Australian stock exchange which was a great ride it was really good we sorted out some assets bought an asset what was the
0: structure of that listing was it a like an evergreen private equity fund?
1: Yeah, so it was, a, it was a managed fund. So And these funds all unwound in Australia off the stable that was Macquarie and then Babcock and Brown as well. And so we were managing a group of electricity distribution businesses and gas distribution businesses and also a gas transmission pipeline in, in Western Australia. I got to a point there where I've been away from Brisbane for a long time, and my wife really wanted to go back. We just had a young family, and the QIC opportunity came up to start sort of an infrastructure team there, and that was the sort of catalyst in 2006 to sort of move back and build the team. Got a blank piece of paper.
0: Why don't you give a broad brush, kind of a 5,000-foot level brush of what QIC is, how it's structured, and we'll go from there.
1: So QIC was created uh, after compulsory superannuation came in in Australia by the Queensland government because they realised that there was a lot of capital that was going to accumulate in their defined benefit, defined contribution. Yeah, and, schemes. and
0: compulsory superannuation. Describe what that is. Yeah,
1: so nine and a quarter percent now of everyone's wage is sort of put away as sort of superannuation locked up till you're sixty-five, and then the mandatory retirement manda- fund. Yeah. Mandatory retirement fund. It's portable. So you and I can move that superannuation if we wanted to around different providers, except to some extent in the public sector funds. And the Queensland funds had that restriction, but part of the DC plans now had it removed. So that's created today the fourth largest savings pool in the world. So it's a significant aspect. And it feeds in to why, you know, I think infrastructure investing has been well supported by that particular institutional group. But QIC... Created then a capability of sort of fund management, if you like, to manage money in those sort of two areas, particularly the defined benefit fund, which was basically vested its whole CIO function is in QIC. And around that, our asset class capabilities evolved over time. We realized that we could do alternatives well and differentiate performance. But conversely, in equities, we didn't. And yeah. so so, so we outsource equities.
0: Yeah, when you showed up in 2006... What asset classes were part of the pool and how is it done?
1: It was equities, it was fixed income, and there was real estate, which had been the oldest private capital asset class. The gentleman who started private equity and I started around the same time in 2006, six seven, And so we were given a brief to build out that capability. Other than that, it had all been sort of predominantly listed.
0: And was that invested internal or was it external managers?
1: It was a bit of both. It was a bit of both. Internally, we did equities. And subsequently, over the last 10 years, we've got out of listed equities. In the defined benefit fund, we outsource that. Uh, and it's and it's probably tipped to more of a, of a passive allocation more than an
0: active one. Yeah. And what's the country bias? Is there, if you looked at just the equity bucket are there more equities in Australia or does it look more like a global It's a global index. index.
1: The Australian market's pretty small and it's pretty skewed in terms of sort of subsectors, uh, resources and financials dominate. So the push on the alternative side was quite strategic. They were probably slow relative to their peer groups in the superannuation funds in Australia to allocate into private equity and infrastructure. And today we're up around... To give you some idea, an allocation of between five and ten percent of the total fund is in infrastructure and similarly even probably higher weighted a little bit in terms of real estate and in PE, I think it's around the same, five five to seven percent.
0: So when you showed up and there was nothing there was just you. Yeah. And there's a goal to put a lot of money to work. Yeah. How did you start to tackle that?
1: Well, I joined with another colleague who co founded the team and she and I spent seven months working out what exactly they wanted. which was an interesting journey. They sort of thought they were going to do fund of funds And we we realised with cost pressures and management fees that, in essence, the trustees or the boards didn't really want that equation. And so our objective was really to build a diversified global portfolio. We started doing a number of direct investments. And we also augmented that with some funds to get the diversification because we were very skewed in the beginning with respect to a couple of sectors. So the first direct asset we did was we participated in a consortium that bought into Thames Water in the United Kingdom, the largest water waste water company, and then it built from there in terms of other sectors. And today, with
0: this pool of capital, it's like ten billion Australian, seven and a half US dollars for those doing the conversion. You own directly just twelve assets. Yeah. All right. How did you think about that strategy a lot of people say wow that's highly concentrated
1: in some ways it is in other ways it's it's not so first of all three sectors we're trying to diversify across transport so road rail airports seaports car parking gas electric water in energy and utilities and then p3 so the relevant private public private partnership models so we've gone into some assets which have very diversified cash flows. So I'll give you an example, the Port of Brisbane, which is a landlord port, has multiple commodities, not just containers, but also coal, grain. So we built up, as best as we can, a diversified, uncorrelated set of assets. And that's sort of the ongoing objective that we had, is adding more direct investments by geography, diversified by sector, diversified by assets lifecycle as well, because lifecycle risk in the duration that we're looking for in infrastructure is a real issue. You've got a capex cycle in all of the assets which you're looking to sort of manage. The approach we had was a very buy and hold approach. From scratch, a zero waiting. They wanted to get to a certain level and obviously get that diversification over time.
0: So let's just talk about one of these assets, the Port of Brisbane. You might think from the outside, well, you're in Brisbane – <laughs> the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Brisbane, don't you own the port already? How did that come about as a deal?
1: So that deal was a privatisation by the Queensland government. They had a program of assets and this was an interesting privatisation program. It had a railway which got listed, it had forestry assets which got sold in a public auction. The Port of Brisbane was sold as an auction asset and so we, we joined up in a consortium to bid for that asset and we ended up being successful The last asset in that program is actually really quite interesting because it was a toll road company which was not really in a shape to be sold. So what they did, which was quite innovative, was they vested the whole asset into the public pension fund, the defined benefit fund, as a contribution in kind, and we managed that asset and commercialised it. So it went in at, call it, $3 and change, We commercialised it. It was an asset which had no treasury function, no debt. It basically had a phone at the end of the CEO's desk where they swept cash into the state treasury. And so we literally, over a three-year period, were able to commercialise it. And then we added a couple of toll roads. It, It had two toll roads when we acquired it. And then we added three other toll roads that the city owned and we built a network company And then we sold it four years later for about a two times money multiplier, which was a great deal for the defined benefit fund because it basically meant that it was fully funded. And the beauty of the transaction was the asset wasn't registered on the state's balance sheet, but by putting it into the defined benefit fund, it actually improved the credit rating of the state because it meant that there wasn't necessarily a deficit that they had to factor in. So that was quite an innovative recycling deal.
0: How do you think about the ownership of assets for the long term, as compared to almost like a private equity, like, okay, we're gonna own the asset, fix it up, and then sell it?
1: That example I gave on Queensland Motors was an exception. Most of the assets are really held for duration, and our challenge is getting alignment with management, having good governance in those assets, particularly. And then over time, driving value whether it 's through expansion of the asset improved performance and operations of the asset and that is really an increasingly active management exercise with the value chains that we see evolving in logistics in energy particularly we're, we're seeing you know an emerging sort of decentralization of a system in electricity that was very centralized with the sort of Emergence significantly of renewables, smart grids and also battery storage. These are really quite important disruptors to the historical model. And so from that point of view where we're always looking to sort of renew the management because we had to sell Queensland motorways because it was a concentration issue. But in the main, we are looking to sort of build out the assets for the the pools of capital we, we manage and that has become probably a more active exercise now than it was in the beginning.
0: And is it the intent to be a permanent owner of those assets?
1: To be a permanent owner. And some of these assets are very scarce. They, they might not trade very often. And from that point of view, if you've got certain key assets, gateway airports, gateway ports – very strategic water assets, for instance. Some of these things are quite scarce, and so the ongoing value of them in the portfolio is very well regarded by the trustees who are looking for capital-preserving assets, long duration. I mean, that is that is what the asset class sort of is delivering into the superannuation and pension market that, that we observe.
0: So the Brisbane asset is local. The Thames Water Assets in the UK... Do you decidedly try to invest more locally?
1: We don't have that as an imperative, but the underlying liability profile of the fund, particularly the defined benefit fund, is a CPI plus sort of liability that's growing. And so if we can get a CPI plus linked cash flow in Queensland, then we're directly offsetting for that particular pool of capital, You know, the liability with a great asset. Elsewhere, where we're managing capital outside of sources based in Queensland, they're looking for diversified, stable, predictable cash flows, and they like the inflation hedge. So we work to find that in particular assets. Now, not all infrastructure assets have that in the revenue line or in a contracted asset, but that's what we, we look to endeavour to provide is a, a diversified set of those cash flows Particularly across the sectors and across the geographies,
0: and within the so the twelve assets that you own, how many of them are in say Australia versus outside?
1: If we exclude New Zealand, which often people do in the in the realm of Australasia, you know the majority of the assets are in Australia. Yeah, so we, we've got. Um, Two or three assets here in North America. We've got the Thames asset in in the UK.
0: What's been the most challenging deal that you've done?
1: The most challenging deal was we bought into a Spanish ports concessionaire company with a family, and um, take me through it. That was uh, so the lessons learned. You know, we probably got the thesis right just before the GFC that you know there was going to be an opportunity, particularly in emerging markets, to add. Port concessions and they did come up unfortunately what happened was the family didn't have the capital to ride that opportunity set with us and basically they didn't want to get diluted so we got squeezed in not really growing the base of the business in the way we wanted to Spain got thumped in the GFC <laughs> as you would know and so but does that affect I guess it affects volume of traffic oh yeah it did in the economic activity and, and yeah. it was actually it was actually really interesting we went back and looked at You know that profile of traffic. And it fell off about three to four months before the GFC. It actually fell off a cliff. And it's sort of one of those things that within our wider QIC business we're becoming more aware of is the private assets can give great insight into some of that primary data that doesn't always get into the mindset of markets as quickly as you might think. And so by calibrating different investments, we've been able to sort of take some takeaways with respect to where we are in the market cycle, relative value. And and that's been sort of an interesting learning as we've been in it.
0: You know, it's a fascinating data set because on the one hand, that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, sometimes public markets lead economic activity. So how did you take what you're learning and try to figure out how you can develop lessons across the asset classes
1: so we have an exchange where we bring all the asset classes together and there is uh, an opportunity for people to sort of question we have the cio of the defined benefit fund who's sort of got allocations into all of the strategies and and he's sort of a great cross-reference source for us and so with his mindset with his sort of investment objectives I think we challenge internally quite well with a very close client, which is really very valuable. And then we're able to leverage that with other external money we manage, I suppose, and and get their perspectives as well. So from that point of view, it's interesting, private equity, real estate and infrastructure, those three have really worked in different paths and different cycles. And some sectors cross over, which are quite interesting. Others don't. But in an exchange, it's like macro factor exchange, the input we get from our chief economist who comes into that and puts a house view as a base view, which we all sort of leverage off. So while we're we're allowed in our own asset classes to pursue our investment strategies, we have that opportunity to cross-fertilize and, and sound each other out.
0: What are the structure of those meetings? Like how many people are there?
1: There's typically like one or two representatives from each asset class. And if you want call it chaired by the CIO of the Defined Benefit Fund. And it's sort of an open exchange. You might sort of go through his weightings. We might give our observations on deal flow and where we're seeing opportunity in the market. So it's pretty free form. It wouldn't be like strict, here are the... Seven things we're going to discuss necessarily. How often do you do it? Probably every couple of months that they come together. And it's a lot of informal in the sort of sure. corridor and we you know, we you know, we don't sit that far apart from each other.
0: And what are you preparing when you go into the meeting?
1: I'm taking our pipeline, our sort of key macro factors that we are sort of shaping our investment plan for each year. So each year we, we sit down, we have a macro view on themes that are going to affect infrastructure, then we put that into basically a set of investment themes across the sectors and then we have our sector teams build up from the bottom opportunities in each of those themes and so I I go to that meeting with those things in mind or a delegate from our team goes and then we are sort of always looking to sort of try and test through some of the forward work of research, like where exactly there is relative value emerging in infrastructure. So we found it very valuable to test that sometimes in that forum and get a listed metric on on something like that, like mobility as a service, for example, or the disruption that's occurring with renewables and, and energy storage. And just get a sounding from the private equity guys who might be seeing something going on in their manager set. And then in real estate, they're more like a direct player where they're, Their feed from retail malls is quite interesting and sort of potentially driving where economic activity is emerging in Australia in different corridors. And and similarly, they've got assets here in the US. So that helps a lot.
0: Was there an insight that you remember distinctly taking away from that meeting that influenced what you did?
1: It's interesting because I think the listed view is quite valuable in sentiment. And so often in talking with the CIO, my key question to him is, what's your sentiment right now because it gives some test of where exuberance is or isn't in some of the sectors we have so the utility sector is a large space in the listed market transportation a little bit sort of less there's less reference points uh, necessarily but in assets like water and gas electric utilities there's a sense of the defensiveness or not and that's quite helpful when we take that into private asset sales
0: so whether things we've we talked about before is you have this large pool of assets to put to work and you've also taken in outside capital talk about why you do that
1: it was a philosophical decision at QIC that in order to continue to position differentiation in the asset classes one of the measures was being able to attract external capital and part of that was to calibrate market metrics on fees on remuneration on on performance and so those elements I think have really evolved for corporation over time so we've become more alternatives tilted and less listed tilted because we couldn't differentiate in those asset classes so we surrendered an internal capability and externalized that and in the areas that we've retained we've built up track records and we've been able to attract third party capital which has been very broadening for the business, very outward focusing, which is sort of very unusual for a government-owned entity. And so
0: in the infrastructure business, what's the balance of internal capital versus external capital?
1: We're about 60% internal and 40% external. We'd probably like to to balance that even further. That would certainly be the objective and, and some of the evidence from the other asset classes that QIC has in its stable. So we've raised a, an external fund with majority external capital. There were some you know, internal clients that were in it, but in the main, it was external clients. And that's been enormously positive for, for our particular part of QIC, but we're following in the footsteps of others who have already sort of done it in the fixed interest and in the real estate space. Yeah.
0: So as you look at the organization, and you've also worked at a private fund in the past, is the business activity... The raising of capital, the servicing of outside clients, similar? Or is it different than it was when you're just at, at a fund management company?
1: Well, I found the internal clients to be really even more hard on us because <laughs> they're just around the corner and they set a very high bar in terms of expectations. And so that was a great grounding to going out and then talking to larger external clients. We, we had a good sense of it. But the rewarding factor is the public heritage is quite interesting from a duration perspective. It also opens interesting exchanges in infrastructure because there's a lot of assets that are tied up with government angles. As you can imagine, a lot of infrastructure is still in that domain. So having that heritage has been quite good in dealing with stakeholders around infrastructure assets because there are three stakeholders in infrastructure assets that keep emerging. The first is obviously the customer of of the asset. The second is regulators. And the third is government at a state, municipal or federal level. you, You intersect with those stakeholders regularly and typically trip and fall in outcomes in the asset class is because you haven't managed one of those stakeholders very well. And the government side of that, do you end
0: up having a competitive advantage in, called Australia or Queensland assets Because you can imagine the influence if US private equity firm or a Chinese government entity came in and wanted to buy a port, the sort of strategic asset dynamic, how does that play out in the deal dynamics?
1: Look, it helps, Ted. But the impetus on a privatization is it's got to be a public process, in Australia at least. But the mindset that you come from being within a government provide at times has been helpful, not in every market. In Queensland, we are uniquely placed because we have a very active dialogue with the state, trying to sort of give them insight into how infrastructure is being financed elsewhere in the world, some innovation that's occurring, which hopefully can be applied for their benefit. So it, it has pros and it has cons, and we have affinity with certain types of other co-investors, so Asian investors, particularly, I think, have some regard for the for the government heritage. Not in every market, however, so it does differ. It does differ.
0: And the clients of your external capital are there certain pockets, sovereign wealth, or pension, or is it retail, or who ends up investing in the fund?
1: It's all institutional. So, so we had success in Asia with. Insurers with sovereign wealth peers, we had a couple of investors outside of Australia as well in Europe and also in North America, and we had strong support from you know superannuation funds in Australia where QIC has a brand recognition and and is sort of well positioned in terms of its track record, I suppose.
0: yeah. How does the decision making work on the fund? Because when you think about a sovereign wealth fund and a CIO, There's CIOs, there's different ways of delegating responsibility. Now you have outside capital. So how does that play out?
1: We have our own investment committee for global infrastructure. It has a majority of partners in the team on it and it has two external members, one of which is the chair. We then have above that a trustee board which is overseeing the products and the relevant sort of mandates that we run. And that has got on it people from the QIC board and they oversee, if you like, our adherence to all of the guidelines that we've said we would invest to. So it is it is very empowering to, to the investment teams. At certain levels, there's this very strong oversight of reputation risk which occurs with respect to the QIC board, but the QIC Global Infrastructure Investment Committee is in essence, the key decision-maker around investment decisions. And they're
0: ultimately responsible for making the decision on every deal. And we are, yeah, we are responsible. And the trustee board just makes sure you're within the the guidelines. Within the the guidelines.
1: There's a risk overlay in that that I wouldn't want to understate, and there's also a reputation overlay that comes with that because of certain types of assets in the infrastructure space.
0: And across these different asset classes, either the infrastructure and real estate and the private assets you talked about, have there been instances of – a poor performing fund?
1: In our, yeah. In our in shop. Experience. Yeah. yeah, look, there has been poor performing assets and strategies. We have had to make the hard choice over time of not continuing certain types of asset classes. And, and in that, we've come back to a sort of core group. So that is real estate, private equity, infrastructure, we've got a global liquid strategies area, which is really the listed side of the business. And then we've got what we call our managed fund area, which is really where the DB fund sits with the CIO.
0: So, What was in that mix that's no longer?
1: Listed equities and we had quant. We had a number of quant strategies that we just couldn't get the enduring performance to attract external capital.
0: And and so how much time went by before that decision was made that this wasn't working?
1: Quite a long time on equities, Ted. There, there you know, we, we had a really good crack at it. It was sort of well before I started that we ran and then probably two or three years into my time at QIC, we, we, we decided that that was not going to be something we could pursue further. On the quant side, probably two to three years we gave uh, the strategies. So... There is a procedural justice to, to that element, I think, that was sort of undertaken, but it certainly keeps you focused <laughs> with respect to performing, which is, I, I think, you know, the underlying philosophy that they have.
0: How does QAC approach incentives and compensation?
1: It's a really interesting question because we can't offer stock because we're government owned. So the model we've gone down with is really around alignment with our. Underlying investors. And so it is through a carry structure that is aligned to the performance that we deliver to the client. We have short term incentives which are driven around, again, investment performance, predominantly around half of our sort of KPIs would be linked to that. The remainder are are broken out into risk and the like around processes. The third category would be you know culture making sure the culture is is aligned with a very clear set of values as a fiduciary i think that's a very strong feature with respect to how the teams are sort of managed and then the last feature is it's around the financial performance of the corporation where you know we've got to be sustainable in terms of the staff we have both back office, middle office and front office. We wanna be able to invest in our systems and we wanna be able to invest sufficiently to, to meet the challenges that are out there to be more efficient and productive.
0: And when it comes down to brass tacks in terms of numbers, I know in the states, any of the public pension funds, the compensation is public, it tends to be very muted compared to the private market roles, similar functional roles in the private markets. What does that look like for you?
1: Well, it's probably one of the things philosophically about running external capital. It provides a benchmark in terms of what those customers or clients want. And so we put that against the public clients. The public clients get a very attractive deal as a result of being able to run external capital. But the alignment model is a sensitive one, clearly, because there are a range of industries owned by government and funds management is a particularly different one in the context of their portfolio. And so it must be coming back to adding value to the asset liability mix we're we're managing on their behalf, adding value into the state in terms of economic activity, investing in businesses, in infrastructure and other asset classes we run. And then being a source of counsel, advice if required to provide wider perspective on what's going on in some of the areas elsewhere in the world, which would be of interest and relevance to the government in the state of Queensland.
0: And the KPIs, other than performance, what are the key metrics you look at for your team?
1: So on the origination side, we're really driving how many things that we got in the pipeline. So it's not about conversion of X to Y. It's actually about getting to a certain level or number of deals that we're putting into our pipeline and having that origination as wide as possible within the context of what we've agreed are the relevant themes in a given year that we want to sort of hit. And, And where are we matching that to relationships to drive those deals into our pipeline? So that's probably the first thing. The second thing is around asset management is having acquired something? Have we moved through to plan in respect of the business that we put forward in terms of a business plan? And how have we executed on that in transition? And then how have we executed two years, three years, four years after we've acquired the asset? And then the third is really around how are we continuously improving as a business? So we are active in post-morteming, what we don't and aren't successful on what we've found as successes we're certainly not precious we don't think we're the best at everything we're very keen to understand where someone has done something really innovative and wise in another asset that we observe and so we want to try and capture that and so that continuous improvement is also a way of creating optionality in careers and pathways in our business both in Australia, we've got offices in London and New York, so we're trying to get that mobility in our team in order to experience bigger markets and be able to take the experiences of one market to another market where we feel there's some relative value to be uncovered.
0: What does the internal debate look like when you're thinking about these assets?
1: Well, we're all always asking, are we adding uncorrelated return in the, in the asset we're looking at to a portfolio? Can we differentiate in a competitive environment on an asset a business plan that will drive success. The asset class continues to evolve. And so we keep asking ourselves, where are we in the market cycle? Where can we differentiate? Is this a really high quality property where we feel we can put a business plan together that will fit the duration and the return profile of our investors?
0: And are those, do those buckets tend to be Standard? I mean, at some level, you look at it and say, oh, you're buying a port, you're buying an airport, you're buying a toll road. How do you differentiate between the assets that have viable long duration and others that might not? The
1: first thing is we're really proponent of the sector approach, but people live and breathe a sector in our team. So they originate the execute the asset manager in the sector. So that means you're looking at a port in Australia, you're looking at a port in the US, you're looking at a port in Canada. You're comparing operating models. So that's very powerful. Around that to your question is what's the regulatory environment in that geography? What are the stakeholders amongst government regulators or customers that are really different? Some assets are networked. So airlines and shipping lines are an example that parlay into ports and airports which are networked but then many other assets energy assets in some instances are very local and regional so then you've got to get in and under and understand what are those really local factors around that market which are going to affect I I suppose the outcomes over a long duration and then as you cross geography you've got foreign exchange you've got political risk as well, which comes into play depending on emerging markets, developed markets, OECD, versus other constructs of regions around the world.
0: If you take a step back to QIC and the other superannuation funds, how do you think about the influence that these large pools of capital have in the way they're pursuing investments?
1: They're very meaningful pools. And, And in Australia, a lot of that capital... Has found its way into infrastructure positively in large assets. And the airport sector, by way of example, which was privatised in the late 90s, early 2000s, has really been owned largely institutionally by superannuation funds. They have invested in those assets. You may or may not have had any insight into travelling through an Australian airport. It's a reasonably good experience on a global basis.
0: Compared to the New York airports? Maybe.
1: Not casting suspicions on, on anything, but uh, the investments have been made and and the service levels have been very high, the returns. It's been a virtuous circle in the sense that the assets have improved, that capital has been sourced locally, and so therefore members in those funds have actually shared in good returns as well as getting the utility of the asset. And so from that point of view, there's been a strong level of support in our asset class particularly, and... From a wider sense, I suppose, the pressure to invest at home has been, has been high and fairly constant at times, and there's always been an effort to try and bring capital into the infrastructure asset class. There's a diversification imperative, though, that has to be done as a fiduciary, which continues to drive Australian capital offshore in terms of some of these sort of unlisted asset classes, private equity, real estate, and and infrastructure.
0: How do you think about your objectives? So in a private equity transaction, maximize IRR, whatever it is, multiple return on capital. In some of these particularly local assets, where there are broader constituents who's using the toll roads, the government agency, what's the core mission that you take on when you're buying one of these assets?
1: The core mission is still to get stable, predictable returns from the allocations that are typically given to us in infrastructure. So relatively robust yield and ongoing steady capital gain. So from our point of view, the stakeholder group that I mentioned before around these assets is what you've got to be on top of. The service quality of the offering to customers, the ongoing investment in the asset, health And safety of employees is a big aspect. Labor issues are are very political around some of these assets. Uh, You've also got a desire to keep growing the asset in a relative sense to meet economic activity. And so being prudent about that investment and timely in expansion is, is obviously a sensitive issue for government. For regulators in Australia, there's a very strong centering on customer bills and and the value equation that's delivered to to the user. So whether it's a toll road, whether it's a electricity distribution company, those aspects are always coming into play. And how do you make the trade-offs?
0: So you take a simple example of a labor negotiation.
1: You have to make trade-offs. The perspective is it's a long duration asset. And so you can dial up in the short-term returns, but you will have a consequence with respect to underspend if you look at the quality of the service or the quality of the assets and their maintenance. And so the ongoing challenge is being predictable over that duration and actually ensuring that the stakeholders are brought along. And part of that is probably something that requires transparency at times to be very clear and engaged. Where someone's not engaged, there are stakeholders around infrastructure that can really rock the boat.
0: In the last bunch of years, there's been more and more money in the hands of large private equity funds, whether they're participating in infrastructure or general private equity. What have you seen in the competitive environment for the assets that you're looking at?
1: Well, we've seen a a large number of very big, big pension funds go direct. That There's an internalisation that is occurring. They are attracted to the duration of the assets, the cash, yields that come off that, particularly in this point in the cycle where yield has been sort of hard to find. And so they have become increasingly prevalent. We've seen larger funds raise, capital, there's been a lot of capital sort of raised in the asset class. And there's an ongoing segmentation occurring in the asset class as it matures as well. As people, very similar maybe perhaps to real estate where you had this division of of the asset class, we're seeing that in, in infrastructure by geography or by sector, whether it's energy, transport, renewables, or whether it's by risk return. And so we're seeing increasingly People become more sophisticated in portfolio construction around an infrastructure allocation, and the pressure of that emerging with particularly more allocations, the supply side is not necessarily as constant as it might be in some other asset classes. And particular countries would have more supply because maybe more assets are privatized, more assets are willingly in in a secondary market. So as I said before, some of these assets don't trade all that often. So then you have these large investors who deeply value that tier one core asset very highly and are growing their big, large asset pools. And as a result, they find some of these assets extremely attractive to buy and hold. So that
0: just make the pricing dynamics that much harder to purchase? It, it, It
1: is, it is... And
0: so if you look at it from when you joined in 06 to today, 12 years later, for a comparable asset, what's changed in the purchase multiples?
1: The discount rates have come down. Let's say when we started, mid-teen returns, equity IRRs were, were sort of possible. That as well and truly drifted south in terms of the core assets. You know, some of the very core assets are single-digit IRRs, people- in terms of the market cycle, have been deeply attracted to it. It's been a safe refuge as well in terms of core yielding assets. So we've, we've found the cycle. We've had a tailwind. Real interest rates dropping over the last 15 years has been a significant tailwind. For, for infrastructure going forward, it'll be really interesting to see how performance shakes out in a rising interest rate environment, which will probably sort of be more meaningful in terms of showing where active management of the assets is.
0: And so as you look out, what are you worried about?
1: We're worried about disruption in certain sectors. So we see that in energy particularly. We see digitalization empowering customers more and more. So that has a real input in terms of how assets would be run in terms of infrastructure. We're seeing decentralisation of some of the networks that traditionally have been in energy. In some healthcare assets, we're seeing that as well. We're seeing, I suppose, public debt levels in some ways being an opportunity with respect to the way governments will be constrained. So that provides uh, more opportunity for private investment, institutional, to, to come into the asset class. And we see the larger funds in the internalisation of capability, again, acting to to sort of affect pricing. That being said, we, we are of view that more active management is going to be required in infrastructure with all of those factors and the cycle. We're in the latter stage of a cycle and going forward, to differentiate, we really think these businesses are not set and forget. A lot of people like the stable, predictable nature of them, but in essence, they are operating businesses. So there are ongoing matters to deal with if you're going to have hold them for the duration that a lot of these investors want to. So
0: let's touch on each of those. Let's start with energy and disruption of energy renewables. What attracts you today?
1: Distributed energy, this convergence of renewables and, and battery storage is going to be a really big change. We, If I can summarise... The opportunity, we've seen Uber where there's been excess capacity in the car fleet. The one place in infrastructure where there's massive excess capacity is in electricity because we've built a grid for the peak. And so being able to store electrons and do that at a cost-effective manner and then decentralise what's been largely a centralised network is a really big change in risk and return over the next decade. How do you find an
0: asset to take advantage of that.
1: So you're looking into where there are key customers. So you're looking in some ways to get customer linkages, which give you long-term contracts. So that is back to that stable, predictable cash flow profile. Uh, we see sort of increasing risk in regulated poles and wires where there's going to be a change in the pricing because in some ways it was a one-way price. Going forward, electricity might flow back from the customer into the grid. And so the relevant volumes across poles and wires may alter. And so from that point of view, we've got to be looking at assets that, if they are incumbent, are going to be actively managed to meet that challenge. And how about
0: public debt? It's a subject that comes up quite a bit.
1: So we see that as as positive For private infrastructure investment because the ageing demographics, uh, I think, are going to affect a couple of things. Deaccumulation of savings pools with respect to the baby boom generation promote the type of asset class we're in in terms of infrastructure where yield and stable, predictable returns is, is going to be an attractor. We then also see Significantly increasing healthcare costs, adding to that public debt, and therefore creating opportunity for private investment in infrastructure to go alongside government. And so, increasingly, we see government embracing public private partnerships to work with um, investors institutionally or strategic players to augment existing infrastructure. So, that's an important aspect. The other aspect is whether, in fact, that will be a catalyst for what we've seen in Australia, which is this recycling of government assets. And whether, in fact, large public debt elsewhere around the world will actually invigorate governments to actually recycle infrastructure assets and pay down that debt and use it to potentially reinvest in new infrastructure in time. But the nature of that public debt, I think, is probably a positive because government has been the largest funder of infrastructure historically.
0: All right, Ross, let's turn to some closing questions what was your favorite sports moment
1: my favorite sports moment would be an australian rules grand final where i followed carlton as a kid and i went with my father to a grand final in 1981 and they were down deep in the third quarter four quarters in an australian rules football game and they came back and won and i I've been a lifelong fan. How old were you at the time? I was 13. And unfortunately, if we look at them now, they're in the cellar. So we've got to (laughs) hang on and hope they they sort of rise back up.
0: And how about yourself as a participant?
1: Look, I played rugby at university. I was fortunate there was a great number of players at the club I played. A lot of them were sort of international. They played for Australia in the Wallabies. They didn't often play for club, so when they did come back, every now and again there were some pretty fun games. I remember playing with Michael Liner who was the 5'8 for the Australian Wallabies at the time, and great day. Sort of one of those things where you're looking, you're playing, but you're really looking, having sort of an out-of-body experience. <laughs> we had a big day. We, we won pretty handsomely and I, I'll never forget. He just said, don't worry about one thing. So "Just, I was a halfback passing to him. He said, just make sure you, you deliver the ball with the laces up, which is a bit scary when you think about it.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: I would summarize it as the golden rule. like The way they would frame it would be, t- in terms of others, uh, look at their money as you would want to be treated.
0: What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not have exposure to?
1: I found Flipboard to be quite an interesting sort of app where you can get a lot of information, you can craft it yourself. The second has been trying to understand more mental models of how some of the things in infrastructure are changing. And my second son is doing science which is like a completely foreign place so I've discovered Coursera which is like a, a website where you can sort of go back to school sort of thing and and, and learn about these things from first principles which I found to be really interesting
0: yeah yeah that's great what difficult decision have you had to make that you feel great about today
1: I feel good about moving to QIC so I went back from Sydney to, to Brisbane it was you know a go from scratch situation but it allowed me to go back to Brisbane where I and our family grew up close to their grandparents. And so, so, what made that decision difficult? Because there was probably a lot of opportunity, maybe elsewhere, and government owned corporation always an element of doubt about how it would work out. Uh, you know, not always the most reliable, stable places, but it's been, uh, and I've been great privileged to be able to sort of build the team there and have the support and confidence to do that from people around us.
0: All right. One last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: I think to really sort of enjoy the journey and and embrace the relationships that you have on that journey, whether it's lots of time with family or just with the interesting people you meet, you're sort of driving to get to point B from A, and you you sort of sometimes forget how lucky it is to meet some of the people you do in the trip, and so. What I'm finding now is it's quite a good thing to go back and thank those people and and, and embrace those relationships, which uh, I think you can always do. Don't leave it too late.
0: Yeah, amen to that. Ross, thanks so much for coming this way and taking the time.
1: My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Ted.
0: Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.